and welcome back to Rehydrate. This season, we'll be reading and discussing Isaac Asimov's Foundation Trilogy. This is Season 6, Episode 3, The Merchant Princes, covering Part 5 of the book Foundation until the end of the book. The hosts have varying levels of knowledge of this book in this series. My name is Dan, and I've only read Foundation. My name is Talia. I've read The Gods Themselves and a couple other Asimov short stories, but this is my first time reading The Pivotal Foundation. My name is Priya, and I've read um, Only Foundation so far and iRobot by Isaac Asimov. And um, we will talk about this later, but I've recently spoiled myself with the show. So, yay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, I had one item for a follow-up. Uh, last time I was kind of mulling over the idea of like, I, if Asimov, you know, got in trouble because of his kind of anti not anti-religion, but like pretty thinly veiled criticism of religion, okay. I found in like the, the last chapter with the missionary stuff. Um, so I actually asked a question on Reddit to see if like people had known of anything. Uh, and then one person did respond with an article that kind of had declassified documents from a FOIA request for stuff that was related to Isomoff from from back uh, when he, I think it was in the 70s when it, when it happened, or no, not 70s, it must have been the 50s when it happened. Anyway, it wasn't related to the religion stuff, but it was based off of him being a you know immigrant from the from Russia from the USSR and he had i guess mentioned that like the Soviets were the first people to create a nuclear power plant and and that was supposedly controversial it's true but that doesn't you know doesn't stop people from <laughs> having their their xenophobic views and trying to turn in people at that especially during that time the interesting thing to me was that like he you get i guess like you know you might have been a person of high importance because he sent it to j edgar hoover it got to j edgar hoover and hoover actually like famously is, you know, he had a lot of questionable tactics about his uh going after people during that time right. and but you know he he kind of dismissed it out of hand being like uh here's some pamphlets to uh to, to look over and like kind of dismissed them and didn't you know really take it seriously which i thought was interesting yeah so i'm guessing also like the guy who turned him in didn't read foundation because if he had he probably definitely would have brought up the anti-religious angle if he even understood it which means yeah, he probably wouldn't have um anyway so i thought that was uh it's pretty interesting so thank you to the person on reddit who responded with that uh, article and i'll link it in the show notes so people can take a look at that yourselves but let's move on to this episode and this section of the book and the, the end of foundation so in about 155 fe hover mallow a trader meets with joran sutt secretary to the mayor of the foundation Sud is troubled about the disappearance of four ships in the remote Carilion Republic and asks Mallow to go there with his eyes open. Mallow, thinking this is the start of another Selden crisis, agrees and takes James Twer with him. Upon landing on Corel, in the midst of a tense standoff for the local mob opposing his presence, the crew of Mallow's ship, Farstar, takes in a priest named George Parma, who has escaped the mob. After consideration, Mallow orders to give Parma up to the authorities, citing that a, a priest being on Corel is against the laws of both Corel and the Foundation. Secretly, he confides to Tor that he thinks that the entire situation was a setup. Mallow's suspicions are confirmed when, shortly after, he has extended an invitation to meet with the leader of Corel, Commodore Argo, for dinner at his palace. When he meets with Argo, he ensures them that they are not there to spread the Foundation's religion, but just to trade. Mallow offers nuclear goods from the foundation ranging from women's jewelry to kitchen appliances to industrial equipment. Argo is persuaded once he learns that he personally can become rich by funneling trade through himself. During his time on Corel, he also visits a factory and sees that a guard has been outfitted with the weapons of the empire. 
After leaving Corel, Malo makes a side trip to Sowena, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, in the hopes of seeing their nuclear reactors, which are controlled by the tech men, an order where knowledge is passed down from generation to generation. Malo, aided by a former Empire senator named Barr, is able to bribe one of the tech men with a personal shield to see the reactor. And when he asks them if he knows how to fix it, the tech man incredulously says they can never break down. Malo returns to Terminus and works with Ankar Jail to get himself elected to the Senate. Sut does not like this political move and instead has Malo arrested and put on trial for the murder of the priest on Corel. During the trial, Malo shows that indeed the priest was a setup as he shows the recording that the priest had a tattoo of the KSP or the Karelian secret police. Malo rides the momentum of public support to ascend to the position of both mayor and high priest of the foundation in just three years, during which time he has decided to take no action against the looming threat of Corel's impending attack. When Sut confronts him about his inaction, Malo explains that now Corel is dependent on the goods that the only foundation can supply, that the threat of economic collapse on Corel due the cessation of trade with will quell any planned attack. As Malo once again has Sut arrested, he tells him that the time for control via religion is over and that the new means of control is now economic. The foundation will now become a land of traders and merchant princes. So in this part, we have an entirely new slate of characters. Uh, you know, other characters are mentioned in passing, but the characters we're actually seeing are entirely new. So we'll have Talia go over that. Yeah, the characters in this section were Hober Malo, a master trader in the foundation and captain of the Far Star, Joran Sutt, secretary to the mayor of the foundation, Publis Manlio, foreign secretary to the mayor and primate of the church, Jane Twer, who travels with Malo to Corel but is revealed to be a foreign priest sent as a spy, Commodore Asper Argo, leader of Corel, George Parma, who appears to be a priest but is really a member of the Corellian, secret police sent to entrap Hober Malo, Commodore Alicia, the Commodore Argo's wife, Onum Bar, a patrician of the old galactic emperor of Trantor, living in exile on Suina, and Ankor Jail, Malo's political partner. Did much better job than me on the pronunciations. I found these are pretty hard. <laughs> this, the secret this... is to make them all up and then stick to it. Yeah. Um, so let's get into the book a little bit. So, you know, like I said, we kind of mm -hmm. shift perspectives on entirely new characters. Um, and I thought it was pretty interesting how the main character kind of shifted from Hardin in the kind of previous chapters to Mallow being the new central figure, you know, 100 or 70 years or 75 years after the events of, of Hardin. Least, yeah. Yeah. And then Hardin and, and, and Selden are kind of like now like mythical historical figures, even like quoting uh, Hardin, some of Hardin's famous quotes now. One example is to succeed, planning alone is insufficient. One must improvise as well. I'll improvise. So yeah, like how did you how do you guys think about uh, Mallow and do you uh, what, what are your guys thoughts on this this part uh, in general? I would definitely agree that he's cast in the role of the protagonist in this part, just because more action is on him and he takes the place of you know who we had as Hardin. But I definitely found him a little bit seedier for reasons I can go into. Priya, what was your take? I feel like I'm going to have a lot of like hot takes in this section. <laughs> mm. Okay, so now we've read the whole book. And I seriously, apart from Hardin's character, which I feel like has a lot of potential um, that wasn't always fully actualized, I think um, all the other characters after that who are sort of like the main characters of their sections are kind of writing on the coattails of of like the way that we've seen Hardin to be established and I don't see very many like 
distinguishing characteristics they have their own that makes them seem very different from Harden. It's like they're they're cut from the same cloth as Harden in a sense, and but Harden is the first, so they don't kind of meet that mark all the way. So that's just the sense that I got. And I think um, we'll talk about this more, but it's just, just by this point in the book, it became pretty jarring to me that all of these characters are dudes. So <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, we'll talk more about that. Yeah. And and I'm not even someone who's like, always like, I need, I need this many of this type of character. Like I need this many like female to male ratio. No, but I feel like it's just, we'll, we'll get more into this. <laughs> yeah. I, I get to definitely see, like, it seems like they're meant to be sort of the same not 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 the same, but like very similar, right? Yeah, like you said, cut from the same cloth. Like they're they're both manipulators of the situation, and maybe that's the kind of person that Isamov expects would like kind of rise to the occasion and like you know meet these Selden crises. And maybe that's all built into psychohistory. But it seems like uh, we're Harden is like more actively manipulating the situation. You know, he's like going through and like causing events to happen, right? That the kind of that line up to his benefit. Where Mallow, his whole philosophy was just like, I'm gonna sit back and let it happen, right? I'm gonna I'm gonna be a trader, I'm gonna do my trade, and that's gonna he he knows that like that's gonna eventually facilitate like the economic collapse of other civilizations if they don't fall in line. I feel like something that I so I was holding Asimov to a much higher standard in terms of character creation because I feel like in iRobot we're dealing with like robots but there is so much dimensionality to the characters um they're human characters too obviously but in all of these short stories there was a lot of character dimensionality and i find that very much so lacking in the characters that i've seen in this book and i think that the reason for that might have been that it's not as much character driven as it is politics driven so maybe that's the reason for that. But I like the kind of writing I enjoy is very character driven. So that that might be my gripe with it. Hmm. I, th- I think that's fair. I mean, like the one of the issues when that issue is like, like one of the things that that would drive that characters not being at the forefront is that the characters keep shifting after every, you know, we have three different sections, basically, or I guess four different sections of, of characters with only Harden kind of repeating for two of them. It almost feels like a little bit too ambitious at times that he's trying to span a very large swath of time. So he has to keep changing the characters. You can't like realistically have one character span the whole book because it's taking place over a really large period of time. But in that, that just makes the lack of character development worse, I feel. I'm not going to be an apologist for the entire series, but I do want to just like reflect the fact that these were individual stories in magazines and public consumption favored a longer form novel. So, you know, it was amended and turned into a novel, but not wasn't necessarily the way that it was written to be. But I do I do hear your point, Priya, where like it's hard to believe in the depth as well as the breadth if we're going across so much time and having to reintroduce to, you know, harden part two. I, I think that's definitely a, a valid reminder because I, I, because I'm reading it in this format, I tend to forget like the format that it was originally meant to be read in. Um, 
or I'm not sure meant to, but I just want to give so much props to Asimov for originality because there's so many tropes of science fiction that I'm realizing right. I think came from from him and his works. Yeah, definitely. But if I may, with like another hot take, is that um, I feel like the foundation is just that, like a foundation off of which you can create richer, more meaningful characters and ideas and worlds that Asimov does not necessarily do himself in this book. And I know that sounds really cringy to say that about Asimov, but <laughs> I feel like he planted like the seeds that seem to have germinated in other works of sci-fi that he didn't necessarily write himself. Mm. Yeah. I, I wonder, you know, we'll find out, you know, in the next couple episodes here, if like, the, cause I think the other books weren't written in the same way. I think they're written as novels to begin with. Right. So I wonder if they are a more cohesive story and have characters that kind of span like entire books or maybe even the entire series. Maybe, I don't know. I don't know how much time jumpy we're going to get. I, I have no, no foreknowledge of anything that past this book. So, but I think just given the format that I think there's a bigger possibility of kind of more long running characters. And I think like I've seen that on, you know, spoiler free, you know, kind of reviews and stuff, how it gets more character driven going forward. But I think like at the heart of it, it's going to be, Space politics is like the the big the biggest overall theme, and I'm 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 there for space politics. I I love it. Mm -hmm. Definitely. I guess it was just reading this part of the book, and we're watching Mallow abandon a man to his death to like the mob outside, and it's fine if that's the kind of character he's written as, but to make him sound like a protagonist, but also the central character and a mystery didn't work for me. Like I know that we discussed in the summary how there's like these plots that are uncovered and revealed, but I didn't feel suspense and I didn't feel like I was in the world with a fighting chance of making those discoveries by myself, which I appreciate about mystery when it's done really well. I just thought, okay, this is the direction that we're going. I didn't feel like it was part of a part of a mystery story. I think I was relatively surprised with the uh, the turn. I mean, I think the priest was kind of obvious. And I think it was it was kind of surprising that they didn't go with the obvious route of of saving him, right? Like the humanitarian route. And then Mallow mm. kind of stuck to his guns, and he he kind of knew, you know, that it was a setup. And if he had done that, then it would he would have failed that test. Um, but I think I was genuinely surprised by his first first mate or whatever, uh, Twer, you know, kind of being a setup as well. And, you know, he, I think Mallow knew it all along too, or he did know it all along, mm -hmm. um, but it wasn't obvious to me. Maybe I'm just, you know, not a very observant reader, but I think that, that was, that was a relatively surprising. I thought like the trial was a little contrived. The The trial seemed a little bit too quick turn to Mallow's side. Like as soon as he saw the tattoo, like the whole crowd starts, you know, chanting long live Mallow. Like that seemed a little bit unrealistic to me, but the, I think like the other mysteries like were were genuinely surprising to me. I think Lucy Shin spoiled me because like <laughs> he had me on the edge of my seat constantly like, oh my God, what's going to happen next? There is so much doom on the horizon. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. But, Definitely. <laughs> and, and, and the scale and the stakes are so much larger. And I think when I haven't been brought into this story in a way that I find the characters compelling or the plot necessarily compelling I found myself kind of drifting in and out of like caring a lot of the time 
not to mention it's all predetermined by Selden, right? <laughs> like, right. That's the whole exactly. premise of the book. <laughs> yep. Exactly. They're just trying to figure out, like, yeah, like given his his spoiler free review of how the uh, the, the empire is gonna gonna fall, yeah, how, uh, nice how, how they're gonna, how they're gonna <laughs> yeah. connect the dots between the the Selden crises with politicians, of course. That's how you connect <laughs> the dots. A politician will come in and weave their own story. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I thought like the the politician stuff was was pretty interesting. Like, I found like a lot of parallels to current politics, and you know that this was written. 70 years ago now so yeah it's pretty interesting like i mean maybe it's more sad than anything that we just continue on the the same path but like our policy is getting worse and worse but like there's one quote that i read when i read it said um from uh, when when Mallow was talking that says uh don't know about that set as a general rule politicians start shouting seldom crisis at every mayorality campaign it just reminded me of like how like especially after in like the the early 2000s people would just like you know use 9-11 as like a a crutch for, Rudy a, for fear to yeah yeah <laughs> to yeah every republican and you know even democrat for that matter like would use 9-11 mm-hmm. as like a justification for anything to get themselves elected and there's even smaller scale stuff that happens all the time you know caravans or whatever else to instill fear that that just continues for, you know through on so it seems yeah. like the, the the using the Selden crisis is that sort of same crutch, like what just reminded me of of our current state of politics. Oh yeah, definitely. I feel like the talking points haven't really changed much over time, and I feel like there's always this fear mongering on both sides that is relied upon heavily in order to spur campaigns. So that's definitely very relevant and sad. Yeah, that it does it doesn't seem to get any better. Arguably, it might even get worse. So yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. People always talk about like you know how it used to be much worse, much more personal back you know when um, in the like the Washington's time and like the really early days of the the founding of the U.S. Um, but I don't know. It seems it seems hard to believe that it's much worse than it is today. Like today seems to, and you know, the, the whole premise of this book is that the empire is in stagnation and, mm-hmm. you know, and, and on the, and the verge of failure it just reminds me of like, well, is that where America is right now? Like, I don't, we don't want to get super political. I mean, maybe hey, we do. Spoilers, I don't, I don't... spoilers for America's end. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but like how close is it? Like where in America is, it, it, you know, versus the empire. It just seems like we're based off our current divisive politics. We're you know, getting closer, closer and closer. So Will people try to control, will it be an outside force who control us with economics and maybe a new religion that's based off of whatever? I guess this is all based off the Roman, the fall of the Roman Empire. And I think, you know, America's kind of following that same track too. So I think it made sense that this this story also tracks with that, even though I don't think Isomov had that in his mind. Maybe he did. I don't know. It didn't seem like America was quite as in a state that it was like back in the 40s when he wrote this. Like they have, I think everyone was like joining the war effort and like, you know, kind of building around that. But there's also a perilous time too, right? Like you didn't, you didn't know who was going to win that that war. Uh, it, could, it could have easily, you know, gone the other way. So may, maybe he did write it with that, that in mind too. Well, I'm sure um, our current president remembers those times. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I just have to make a comment about that. <laughs> Uh, and there's also another comment about anti-intellectualism too. And he says, uh, I know it's out of fashion these days in decaying times to be a scholar. So I thought that was also interesting. There's also like this broad swath of anti-intellectualism where, you know, being an actual intellectual is kind of seen as bad for whatever reason, you know, if you're a nerd or whatever, like those concepts also carry on, I guess. <laughs> uh, another part that I found pretty interesting was just the, just the kind of ever-present threat of nuclear weapons. And 
thinking about the time frame this is written in, this was written in 1940. This part was written in 1944, I believe, and the first parts were written in 1942. But there's like this threat of like nuclear weapons the, the entire time. And I, I, I guess like me personally, I'm not sure like how much was known about them at the time. Like the first bomb wasn't used until 1945. So like, and it seemed like that was probably a super secret project. So like how much was known? Priya, you did a little bit of research on this. Did you want to talk about it? I have actually always had a fascination with the radioactive things in science mm. and um, the, the initial discovery. Like I was very fascinated by the fact that um, Marie Curie and Pierre Curie um, first uh, discovered radium and that was all the way back in 1898 is when they discovered radium. And uh, so this there was this newfound understanding that atoms contain hidden energy that can be harnessed in some way, shape, or form because of the, the large amounts of radioactive energy that were emitted by radium. And of course, we know that radium later ended up having like disastrous effects on on health, particularly um, women's health, because um, the women, like uh, you've heard of the radium girls, the the girls who used to paint the uh, the watch hands, were subjected to horrible amounts of radiation and um, suffered terrible cancers as a result. And so, I think the mindset of like atomic energy was there from the early 1900s, arguably late 1800s. And I found when I looked up on a very reliable source known as Wikipedia. <laughs> the The Manhattan Project was started in 1939, which is like very close to when Asimov was writing and when the first bomb was dropped. But H.G. Wells, who's the author of the famous um, Time Machine, wrote about atomic weapons in his 1914 novel, A World Set Free, which I haven't read, um, but it looks interesting. And then the stage was set um, even earlier by Marie Curie. So um, all this is to say that it was very much in the minds of people before 1945. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, someone else mentioned on Reddit when I posted about this about another book called Deadline or another, not book, but uh, another magazine article uh, that was published called Deadline in, I think, 1944. And it, I guess, very accurately describes how uh, those Gwena weapons work. And it was so accurate that the FBI actually told him to stop writing about it and was worried that he, like, got access to some secret information that he shouldn't have. Uh, but I guess eventually they are convinced that he just was able to glean the information out of public journals and uh, scientific uh, research papers and that kind of thing. But they did ask him to not write about it for a while, <laughs> you know, to not give the research to, to, to potentially to enemies. I, I didn't read the story. Given the summary, it seemed like the author didn't like the story itself, but I'll only get here anyway. It's, it's, it's public domain now. It's on archive.org. Um, so if you are interested in reading it, uh, it'll be there. So just in general, this part of this this book, part five of Foundation, seems to be, uh, you know, well, it is about the shift in power from religion to economic. And the reason that the traders uh, and that the merchant princes are able to gain power is by leveraging the power of economics. And Malo especially um, seems to be the most adept at doing that. And it, it's interesting, like he's saying like, well, I knew it used to work, you know, that like during hardness time, it was very, uh, it was very effective and, you know, we were able to gain a lot of control, but like 
all the other worlds are kind of catching on, including like Corel, right? Corel says like, we're not, you don't have missionaries here. Cause like, we know your game here. You're going to go, you're going to introduce your religion. Then you're going to start taking us over. And like, it seems Corel is like one of many systems that kind of caught onto the game. So they instead shift to using economics as, as leverage here. And this is much in line with the, I think the stuff that Talia was talking about last time with uh, Krugman's uh, uh, fascination with this series and like i can see why right because like mm-hmm. it's, it's how economics kind of rules everything right yeah, um yeah. so towards the center of power and the center of power keeps coming back to something that looks a lot like the science of economics yeah 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 i also just was as i was reading the last part part two moving on to the third part and we do really see, clearly see the shift from you know, religion to economics and like merchant traders, I was reminded. And if you listen to season five, I do plug, you know, Chinese history, not infrequently. So I'm going to do it again. Uh, (laughs) I was reminded of the spread of early Christianity in China, um, circa the end of the Ming dynasty. Um, So the figures would be like Francis Xavier and Matteo Ricci, if you're familiar with the time. But you don't need to be familiar at the time because what happened is that in the very, very early trade that was happening between the West and the East in the 1600s, the Jesuits came and were generally well received because the Jesuits had a lot of really interesting skills that any empire would like to have, like really accurate cartography and uh, excellent mathematics skills and study techniques and insight into memorization and things that work across cultures. But when they first arrived in the courts, you know, they had a somewhat shallow understanding of China and they saw the robes and they heard about Buddhism and they were like, Oh, okay, I guess we'll dress ourselves in, you know, long Buddhist robes and people will revere us because when we dress ourselves in, you know, we're men of the cloth, literally men of the cloth back in the West that's the highest status position, only to figure out once they arrived, actually the Buddhists and the Taoists, they sort of just do their own thing, and they're not really the center of power. The center of power is in the literati, is in the scholars, is in these people who prepare for the exam systems. And so, of course, they don't devote themselves to prepping for Chinese exams, but they do realize where the power is start dressing like the literati and shift because they understand that that's where the center of power is. And so I thought it was really nice to see this also shift in part three. The center of power is now economics. And didn't China also ban all all religion? Like, you know, when it gets to the cultural revolution, like as kind of anti, anti-communist or anti, anti-Mao stuff um, when the, the, the his, power, his, his party actually took over and they, they banned all those people out, out of China. Yeah, but the China that I'm talking about and the China that you're talking about, like 10 American histories could fit in between them. <laughs> so, yeah, <laughs> true. Um, but yes, uh, missionaries are definitely a touchy subject because they do have compelling power. Um, so they are banned in, in mainland China and have been for. Oh, they're still banned now? I thought I, I, uh, oh, yeah. I, I didn't I didn't know they're still banned. Oh, yeah, for sure. Don't bring more than one Bible if you go to mainland China, because you can be a little weirdo and you can read it for yourself. But if you have two, that's, you know, (laughs) possession, that's intent to distribute. Yeah. When I went to China, I was pretty interested uh, to see that there were churches around. It's like a big church, like right in um, in the middle of Shanghai. I was like, wow, surprised they they kept it up there. Yeah, it's, it's tolerated and to some degree, you know, promoted by the state. But 
there's a difference between having unchecked missionaries come into your town and, you know, having a couple of churches. I like this. It reminded me of Dune and the Bene Gesserit and obviously, you know, like the Mentats coming in and being used as tools. But uh, this is not the time for discussing Dune. I want to return to book one since Priya's right. We did finish it so we can talk about it in its entirety. Yeah, that's really fascinating about the Chinese history because I I admittedly know very little about um, Chinese history. Uh, On a similar note about faith, what I found very interesting was um, this other quote from the book. that says, now any dogma primarily based on faith and emotionalism is a dangerous weapon to use on others since it is almost impossible to guarantee that the weapon will never be turned on the user. Mm-hmm. For a hundred years now, we've supported a ritual and mythology that is becoming more venerable, traditional, and immovable. In some ways, it isn't under our control anymore. So I found that really interesting because normally um the way that i look at religion is that religion is very like you know it's it's rigid in a way that science is not um because science is always changing adapting to new discoveries whereas religion is sort of just based on certain tenets and those have been handed down over generations and this is speaking to the fact that this is why religion becomes a force and an entity i guess of itself that no longer can be manipulated and i think that's definitely true of how we know religion now i know of course there's many different um interpretations of religion but like as the religious doctrine itself and the people who are firm followers of it it seems that they've discovered that like this thing is only a like a weapon we can wield as long as we can mold it a certain way but now it's become sort of like canon it's become unmoldable and the idea of like describing religion that way is just very interesting to me yeah and, and not only like religion but like also like the southern crisis or the southern crisis also kind of predicts all this stuff too so like there's another quote later on that i picked out that that was kind of similar to this where yeah, because the religion is stagnating, the shift to trade. Um, so when uh, Malos talking to Sut at the very end of this chapter, uh, he says, this is a southern crisis we're facing, Sut. Southern crises are not solved by individuals, but by historic forces. Harry Selden, when he planned our course of future history, did not count on brilliant heroics, but on the broad sweeps of economics and sociology. So the solutions to the various crises must be achieved by the forces that become available to us at the time. In this case, trade. Not only that, but like, Mallow goes on to say, like, later on, this will work for a while, and then we're going to move on to the next thing. But that's not for me to worry about. Like, whoever comes after me will will worry about that. But for now, I'm going to focus on trade and economics because, like, that works right now. Uh, so he understands, like, the the course of, of history will, will change. And, you know, the, the forces that actually, like, enact that change will also change. Uh, so I'm not sure what the next force will be, but... Um, and any thoughts there? I mean, if you think about like our history, like we've gone, you know, we, I think like the U.S. alone, right? Like we started in a more religious controlled society, then we moved to economic control mm-hmm. over over the world. And then maybe like military power is like the next thing, right? Like that that's our means of control right now. Like we go and invade countries or occupy countries. But then we also export culture uh, and knowledge to to whatever degree you were successful at that. So maybe that's another means of control. Um, nuclear power. 
Yeah. yeah. Like, I mean, it's always been, it's kind of been there like looming um, in the background, but it's been so far used more so for the theatrical element of religion or, you know, religious indoctrination versus like actual nuclear warfare. That's true. I mean, this is, this is, this is pre-Cold War, right? So, you know, in his mind, maybe he's thinking, you know, the the mutually disturbed destruction, you know, of Mm -hmm. that, of, you know, maybe another power gains those weapons and, you know, we come to, or the, we, (laughs) I think we as I I live in the foundation, uh, we, the foundation uh, kind of comes into agreement with, you know, similar to like U.S. and Russia, you know, where we, we had treaties where we weren't going to destroy each other, but you know we had stuff like Cuban Missile Crisis where it very well could have. So maybe that that's the next phase there. I mean, I still feel like in a way we are in a cold war in terms of nuclear weapons. That threat never goes away. I mean, it's just now there are more countries with nuclear power, so it's just a growing threat, if anything. So yeah, shifting um, shifting threat. Yeah, now we're like we're not so worried about like France and and uh, UK, but we're, we're definitely worried about North Korea having. Oh having yeah. Them, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it's not like I guess like there's not the same level. I guess like it's not two superpowers like who are kind of on equal footing military military wise, right? Like we're worried about more of like the rogue strike rather than the like North Korea is not going to be able to completely destroy the entire United States where Russia definitely could have at that time. Right. And then, you know, if we, that would have happened, it would have been, if any trigger would have happened, like it would have been, you know, the entire planet would have been destroyed where new, where North Korea has potential of like destroying Los Angeles or something. Right. At best. One hopes. <laughs> One doesn't hope since I live in Los Angeles, but <laughs> One hopes not is what I mean. <laughs> One hope not. Let's <laughs> <Nice> save. <laughs> like as long as it doesn't make it to the East Coast. <laughs> yeah, it's, hard, it's hard for me to care, Dan. I'm just kidding. Yeah. So yeah, I East, care very East, much. East Coast bias. East Coast bias. <laughs> Another kind of parallel is like the not not parallel, but what's what's a good word I'm thinking of? Anyway, like the fact that like Mallow gets Argo on board by the promise of baking of rich through kind of kind of shady business practices like hey i'll sell you these things and you can you can mark them up for you know 500 percent. you can sell the jewelry to people you know and and then you know we get a resupply and you'll be rich and that's how he convinces them so that's another uh interesting means of control that was like a, a good a good tactic on his end as a trader i guess he's probably used that before to um to kind of get people on his side you know because like obviously argo was very very skeptical of of Mallow and of the foundation because you know, he doesn't want to give out control, but he also wants to be rich. That that was a pretty good move on his part on Mallow's part. And this is where I started to get angry because um <laughs> because hmm. here give this to your wife and she'll be happy. Uh, yeah. Go get a girl so we can try this on a girl, a nameless girl. And... I did really want the glowing jewelry, to be fair. That looked really cool. <laughs> yes, but, that. like, make him wear the glowing jewelry. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and who knows what kind of, you know, radiation sickness you're going to get from wearing that thing. <laughs> right. That's another thing. Yeah, and then you had the whole, like, nagging wife kind of, you know, chapter, which wasn't great. Yeah. <laughs> I do. You know, I'm so torn about it because at, at times, like, I love that she kind of jabs at him, like, 
in a way that's very deserved. But also it seems that she is like, that is her character. Like that's just, that is all that she is there to do. That is the only purpose and function that she serves is to be this only female character who is there to nag and annoy and make jabs at. And it's just, and and wield her father's power, right? Like that's yes. her, that's a, that's a real her source of her power is that her power. father is more powerful, <laughs> <laughs> and just constantly reminding her husband. And then her husband clearly hates her. So yeah, um, it's not like it's like a loving relationship below the surface that's not revealed either. So yeah, there's like no redeeming quality to that <laughs> chapter for me. So yeah. I mean, it would have been pretty, I mean, she's sort of like a, a prototypical Cersei, right? Like where she, it seems like, you know, she wanted to have power for herself, but like, maybe I'm just gleaning that. Cause like, I, I'm also a big Song of Awesome Fire fan. And so like kind of like mapping that character onto each other, on, onto her. Um, but I think that'd be like a progression for her, right? Cersei definitely had her own agency and she, you know, becomes, especially in the show, becomes a lot more powerful uh, and taking, c- taking control of, of the situation herself. Right. So that would have been. Uh, a, a good way a, a good progression for her but it didn't seem like it was really in the cards for for this character it was more just a means of showing that argo didn't have ultimate power and that the his wife's father is actually like the most powerful i don't know why but it seems that way he shuts her up with jewelry yeah <laughs> i don't i don't love it <laughs> yeah not 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 great I mean, I know it's a function of the time period in which he was writing, but still, I am not not a fan. De- yeah, definitely, it, it stuck out to me too. Um, what, I might I be a little it. bit biased. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, like I said, it, it stuck out to me too. It, it's it's kind of glaring, and, and maybe that it, yeah, maybe it does function of the time. I don't know if there was other contemporaneous fiction that really focused on female characters as protagonists and like strong, more strong willed. Uh, especially in science fiction. I'm just not sure enough of the genre. So if you guys know or listeners know, please write in. I would like to have more examples of maybe or better examples of, you know, more representation from, you know, from gender perspective. I guess in, in a similar vein, like what, one of the things that Mal was kind of counting on is that the housewives would revolt because their appliances would break. <laughs> so that's also an antiquated kind of uh, uh, thinking there. Like, oh, like the housewives ovens are going to break and they're going to revolt and against the uh, the commander, right? So that, that's another thing that's not, didn't age so well. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, For with regards to that, um, some a, a note that I had written down for a little bit later in terms of the themes was... Um, I don't know where I heard this. Uh, I may have heard it in another um, podcast talking about like something related to sci-fi where it was that um, older writers of sci-fi, they can envision so much about the future. Like they try to envision all these different styles of like political systems that might exist in the future and all these like cool gadgets that might exist in the future like like this uh like nuclear energy being used as like a force field around somebody um that's invisible things like that can be envisioned but like if you take something like star trek for example they have you know you have like this interstellar travel i assume is i'm not a star trek person by any chance i'm gonna say nerd but you know i am a nerd but not a star trek nerd (laughs) um uh so but they can't envision something as simple as like 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 the 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 ships have these manned are are manned have manned pilots no 
are manned by pilots and they they have these like very archaic consoles they couldn't envision like a ship that could like self-pilot basically so like the gist of it is that like there are certain major concepts that you cannot envision for the future so i often wonder like how current sci-fi will age in terms of like what actually ends up happening like maybe 50 to 100 years later down the line so yeah uh that 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 got me thinking about like just these concepts like feminism which was something clearly that could not be envisioned back then so you said that that they have like this whole uh the 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 housewives will go on strike because their appliances are breaking right um so i was saying that like the basic things about the future that can't be envisioned and i know that we're talking in this case about a future where things are stagnating and kind of reverting to older systems but the fact that just to imagine that you would still have a family structure where you have housewives whose entire lives revolve around making sure their dishwashers and laundry machines (laughs) work correctly as they're supposed to like not only is the technology going to be antiquated like thousands of years into the future but like like family structures are going to involve women just being at home, doing the dishes, doing the laundry, and then these things break down and then they have a major, you know, like society crumbles because women can't do the dishes anymore. That, right. That's where I was going. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it seemed like uh, home-wise, home like, yeah, like it's very kind of antiquated, but they talk a lot about like kind of automated uh, industrial uh, plants and like how... They used to do everything by hand, but now they kind of gave them like these new tools to convert their factories to use the 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 new tooling, and it seemed to be a lot more automated. In my mind, it was more of like you know the kind of the modern kind of car assembly lines, where it's like robots controlling everything. Um, so I guess yeah, in some ways, like he is kind of visionary. In other ways, it's more stuck in the in in his time of of what the the future will look like. It's like it's the same ovens, the same the same uh, washers and dryers, but they're just you know nuclear powered now. Okay, so just in general, I want to talk about our overall impressions of this book. We finished the, this is the last chapter of Foundation, first book of the trilogy. So I want to get just overall impressions of, of what you thought of the book. I, I'll go first and say I you know, really liked it. I, you know, Of course, I said before I'd listened to this book, but didn't super pay attention to it um, because I think the audiobook was kind of, didn't do it justice. But I think reading it, I was definitely enthralled and, and looking forward to like reading, uh, reading it again. I've reread it uh, twice since... Um, I, I read it twice since you know in preparation for this episode, so I'm really looking forward to you know reading stuff that I haven't read before, a lot more, and it's kind of surprising uh, amount that I'm I'm really fascinated by it because I wasn't sure you know, based off the audiobook if I'd be super into it because it seemed to be mostly just people talking to each other, but I think there's a lot more to it. Like there's a lot of actions that happen, and I'm really into the the space politics aspect of it, so I'm I'm thoroughly enjoying it and definitely looking forward to to the next book and the rest of the trilogy. I'm so glad that you finished your review with space politics because now I can pick up my review from there. I do have a soft (laughs) spot for science fiction books that smuggle in other ideas. And I do find that like the reason I like Dune so much is that it's an ecological drama and it sells people on being science fiction. And this science fiction book is like a socio-political space politics imagination. I think the scope is really impressive and ambitious, uh, both in time 
and in the grand ideas of like predictions of the future of distillation down to uh, principles that can be learned, studied and taught. Those are all winning points in my book. I will say that it is harder to jump into um, if you have experienced more modern science fiction. And I know a lot of excellent and bright people who have tried and failed to read Foundation. So hopefully uh, the TV show, which we can talk about later, or I mean, I'll say it, this podcast can induce some people (laughs) into this book because once you're in it, it's not nearly as challenging as it is from the outset. Yeah, I think my initial impressions before reading it or before listening to it was that it was really dry, really old, and that would be kind of a hard read. But I found it to be a really easy read, like much easier to read mm-hmm. uh, than than uh, than and stuff, right? Like I, I love it. I, I love both of them. Um, but this seemed to be just a lot easier to just kind of digest really and go through quickly. It's also much shorter, right? It's only 257 pages, right? So yeah, I, I, I was also kind of skeptical of just the the oldness of it, but I find it to be really easy to read. Oh man. It's good when we disagree. It makes for yeah. interesting listening. Yeah. I, I, I will pick, I'll, I'll pick this up where um, Talia talked about. It's more challenging for readers of more modern science fiction to get into. Cause that was definitely my experience. Um, and I, I'm not trying to be very like sardonic right now, but like this afternoon while I was reading, I, I, I'm not an afternoon napper, but like I fell into a nap in the <laughs> afternoon while reading this. And I know that's like a really, really, really harsh review, but um, it was very challenging for me. And I think it's because, and, and, and then at the same time, I keep recommending this book, A Canticle for Leibowitz. And I realized that a lot of people are not able to, get through that book and I was like flying through that book and I think it's like maybe I'm a very specific type of reader of sci-fi because Dan when you're saying that like Lucian was like harder to read I I read those books probably each of those books took me maybe like two days to read each because I was like yeah because I was like flying through them even Dark Forest first first half yes yes I was I was super into them, like every single, like I was like, hanging on every single word, even in like the technical books. I'll tell you the only thing in um, Lucy Jin that like uh, Lucy Jin series that that tripped me up was the stuff about the the computers, the mm. stuff that you loved. <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> I thought that was fun for me to read. That's funny. <laughs> yeah, so I that's that I'm not my mind is not, doesn't work that way, I guess. So, um, but like the, the hard science stuff, I could even get through that, but this, like the political dialogue, cause it's all politically driven, I feel. And there's yeah. not like much exciting stuff happening in terms of the plot. At least I didn't think so. Asimov also doesn't think a lot of exciting things happen. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I guess, I guess we're on the same page there then. <laughs> But yeah, my my experience with the with the book was very different. And then I will say a few things about the show later on, um, which people can skip if they don't want any any amount of like information about the show. It's not even spoilers, but um, I will explain later why the show is appealing to me more, which is like 
it's it's really kind of gross to say that because I'm always someone who likes books more than the show, especially if I read them first, but not the experience in this case. <laughs> That's cool. And also I probably would have stopped reading the book if I wasn't reading it for the podcast. <laughs> but I'm thankful. I'm thankful to the podcast for making me finish the book because I think I think there is something of value to be gained from it. I think there is always value to be gained from reading the classics. So I don't, I'm not mad about the fact that I had to read this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it'd be interesting to see like how this, the, how the next books are, are received by, by all of us, right? Um, you know, from my cursory kind of looking over, like it seems like people like the next two books, like the most, like of, of the entire series, of the, the entire seven book series. Like it seems like, especially um, uh, Second Foundation, like really people seem to really like that one. Sure. So, yeah, I'm interested to see if, you know, why that is. Uh, I've been avoiding spoilers, you know, as much as I can. So I don't know if it's more character driven. There's more big events that happen. So, yeah, I mean, like, I think this is a, a good starting point to see, you know, like our differences of opinions and see if they they change or, you know, maybe, maybe Priya is going to love the next book and we're going to hate it, right? <laughs> because there's no more space politics. <laughs> well, clearly, I have a, a, I have a few different expectations, maybe. <laughs> so maybe I will love it. I don't know. I'm excited to, to kind of dig into that and see how different or not it is. Yeah. And I think like it's short enough where it's not like that much investment, you know, like if you read like 200 and something pages, it's like, it's not so bad. Right. So like, if you, if you don't like it. Okay. Well, like pre mentioned, we're going to talk about the TV show a little bit. So if you haven't watched it or even more spoiler verse than me, we're going to be very careful because I haven't also seen it. Um, so I don't want to know any spoilers, but I trust Priya to not spoil anything um, out of the TV show or for future events that happen in the books or past events that happen in the books. So if you're, if you don't want to even chance it, you can stop this episode here. Thanks for listening. Um, but I hope you do go listen. Uh, and now we are going to talk about the TV show and I will hand it off to Priya because she is the only one who's actually watched it. Okay. So I will preface this again by reiterating that I'm not going to spoil anything because I also don't want to spoil it for my co-hosts. <laughs> um, but uh, I, I'll start by saying I really highly recommend the TV show because it's a completely different experience to reading the book. And I feel like when I was saying earlier that foundation lays a foundation literally for I, with ideas that, um, you know, that are like seeds that can be germinated in different ways in other works of sci-fi. I feel like the show kind of could stand independently on its own because uh, while I haven't read all the other foundation books, so I don't know which ideas in the show that aren't in this book are coming from other books. I do feel that there's a certain amount of world building that happens in the books and character development that I found missing in the book that the show is kind of making up for in a sense. And so it's really fun to see that the core ideas are coming from foundation and the show has kind of taken them to slightly different places or newer places. Um, and that is, that's very enjoyable for me to see how this was all visualized. So how far are you in the show? Like at, at this point, I'm, I think there's four episodes released, right? Yeah, four episodes released. I've watched all four episodes and I'm like really into it. And actually, Sid, my husband, who has a hard harder time getting into shows, like his standards are like very, very high for like mm -hmm. which shows he can get into and which ones he can't. Like he's very like picky, I guess. 
he's also like super into it. Like he's the one who kind of convinced me to break protocol and start watching. So, <laughs> um, so yeah, it's something that will appeal to a larger audience. I feel than the books might appeal to. I can't say anything about Lee Pace's character, but it's a good one, and um, he's very Lee Pace in it. And those who who have seen him and other things will know what I mean by that. But um, I think he adds a lot to the show as well. And I will also talk about how the show is more palatable to a modern audience because of all my gripes that I had earlier on with female representation and the lack of it or a bad representation of female characters. The show takes two characters and casts them as female and also like slightly different types of characters than what you see in the book. And I really, really appreciated that. And I know that maybe people who are very loyal to the book versus like whenever there's a show or a movie made out of a book, some people are like, no, the book is always better. Um, In this case, I feel like I don't see how you can have a female character like Comdora, Alicia cast in that stereotypical way and appeal to a modern audience with that. So I I see how the show will be far more appealing in that sense. Also in terms of um, racial diversity, which hasn't really even been mentioned in the, in the books, because you have these characters who have like all these weird names. You can't even place them in terms of like any kind of ethnicity or like you don't have descriptions of what the characters look like either which is kind of jarring to me uh that's what i was talking about with the lack of like character development i don't even i can't even visualize these characters you know right um other than that character we had earlier on who had that um speech that affected Uh speech yeah darwin yeah yes um (laughs) is he he in the show uh no i don't think so no Mm. no he's not in the show (laughs) (laughs) There's a there's really good um, racial diversity, I thought, and um, gender diversity. So and and it works. It works. It's not just like that. They it, it doesn't seem contrived. It works. I think like one of my main concerns for the show, without without watching it, just for just for audiences in general, is the same thing I'm going to have with uh, Remembrance Rose Past. Is that the characters shift right? Like there's no one character, especially in Foundation. Like maybe again, maybe later on, like the characters are more more prevalent but like in this case like we have you know four different um kind of perspectives and so that's not really good for a tv show to not have a, a main character um but it sounds like the the and then the show that that harden and um and dornick maybe have have more of an expanded role is that is that true that is true yes um yeah. harden and dornick have an expanded role and they're they are the two female ca- the the two characters that are cast as female and they're they're wonderful the, the they're, they're different from how they are in the books and they are both wonderful and i feel like something that i was hoping for in the books was fulfilled by the show in in a sense and i don't know how far they're going to stretch these character lines because i don't know if that that the, they're going to take these characters to the end of the season or not i don't know that yet but so far, what I've seen of the characters has been very like satisfying to see, especially coming out of the book and seeing that what they've done with the, the, these characters and like keeping some elements and changing others. It's very satisfying. There, there is an element of that character development that I was that I was missing. And 
on another note, I will say that I really, really enjoy seeing Jared Harris in the role of Harry Seldon. He's brilliant. Yeah, he must also have an expanded role because like Seldon doesn't, like I said before, doesn't really have much of a direct role. It's more of a mythical role, right? Like he's, well, it's Seldon, right? And he's like, yeah, sort of like a God role sort of. Um, so I don't know if it's, it's also like a more direct, it, like not direct, but just it's more of like an active role in the show. If my, my lips are sealed on okay. that one, but, <laughs> but yeah, well, I, I, you, you'll see Jared Harris and you will be like, oh, there's Jared Harris and he's brilliant at all, as always. <laughs> yeah. And I would guess like there's not, uh, so far, like, uh, is there, can you, can I pinpoint like where in the book, is this all from what I, I, my brief looking at it, it seems like this entire show so far happens in the first chapter of the Psychostorians. Is that true? Um, for the most part, other than, um, elements that are in the show that are not in the, anywhere in this book at all. Right, I don't know right, if they're right. in other books, but, um, there is, there is representations of characters that are not in this book. There are certain themes that make that are in the show that are not in this book at least i don't know if there's i don't know if it's borrowing from like prequels maybe because you said there are prequels and since yeah. i have no knowledge of those which actually i'm i'm interested in looking up now even if it spoils the books for me because <laughs> i want to know what how much artistic license the show takes versus how much they are deriving from asimov himself but just from his other works it'd be interesting to see but Whatever they've done that isn't in this book so far also works. So I'm interested to see where that goes. And I'm interested to see how much further they take it away from the actual text of the book. So I, I would I would really recommend watching the show. Like even if you even if you're like listening to this podcast about foundation, like, oh, maybe this is not for me. I think the show might be for you then. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, my the entirety of my ex, my um, knowledge of the of the show seems to come from the Eismoff Reddit, <laughs> which is pretty much universally panned from uh, not universally, but it's it's a good like 70 percent, 70, 80 percent like disliking the show. And that's probably because like there's a bunch of book book purists. Right. Same way I was with the end of Game of Thrones. Like I hated it because it was didn't stick to the books. Well, there was, one, there was no books, but, you know, when they went off book, it was like, well, this sucks. So I would guess like people who are super invested in Isomoff would have sort of the same reaction. And it seems like the show is kind of building their own path uh, for better for, for Priya, for worse for some other people, it seems. Yeah, there are always going to be people, I feel, who are um, loyal to the books. And I, I mean, I felt that way when it came to like the Lord of the Rings and Harry Potter a lot of the times, though I, I always enjoy seeing the experience of... Like, I always enjoy the experience of like seeing something like a visual representation of something, even if it's like different from the book, because it's it's I, I, you have to allow some like artistic license to take something that's in text and render it in like a one hour, one and a half hour or, you know, in the case of a movie, two and a half hour format that's visual so that it cannot be the same yeah a sure. lot of a lot of dialogue in books doesn't translate well on screen so you have to change some of that stuff but i felt that like you know for books like harry potter and lord of the rings the books are still way better it's a much richer experience to read the books 
with Game of Thrones, I felt like because I had watched the show first, I wasn't able to enjoy the book mm. um, and I never got into them. And I feel like it's because um, George R. R. Martin is like very, very indulgent when it comes to his writing. <laughs> like he indulges himself. Like it's everything's a feast, a visual feast, a literal feast, you know. That is true. <laughs> Lots of food. Lots of food. Lots of food. Um, <laughs> so I feel like in, in this case, I, I went into it having, you know, started reading the book first and then saw the show. And I think it's two completely different experiences and different types of viewers slash readers will enjoy it or not enjoy it based off of that. I hope that was as spoiler free as one can possibly be. <laughs> no, definitely. Definitely. How about Talia? Do you have any intention of watching the show now or are you still going to wait? Definitely. Now that I know I'm not going to be the first um, I could look at Twitter without fear. I'm interested in watching. I don't know if I'll do it before we next meet again, but I, that's also because I don't even have Apple TV. So the waiting is easier for me. We've been um, above all else, speaking of like book loyalists versus, you know, show show viewers. Um, we have been Apple TV loyalists for the past 10 years, I want to say. So yeah, it was a no-brainer no for me to get on the wagon, but um, but I'm glad I did, and I felt so guilty. By the way, I felt so guilty because we had this. I felt like I was breaking a pact to not watch the show. No, no, no. I'm glad that you came clean. Like if you'd been trying to hide your guilt, I think it would have brought really weird energy to the podcast. <laughs> well. Here's the thing. If it was horrible, like if it was terrible and I like maybe I wouldn't have even felt like watching further, then I might have like not confessed that I watched like the first episode and then hated it and didn't continue. Or maybe I'd <laughs> confess that. But like because it's so good, I felt like I should I should put in a good word for it. You know, I'm just doing I'm doing the showrunners a service here by like putting a good word for it because I think that like it's getting a bad rep in Reddit apparently. Um, yeah, really bad. So I thought I should say it's it's not bad. It's really good actually. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting perspective for sure. Like I'm 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 happy to hear that that people who have read the book also like the TV show, right? So uh, I think that's yeah, it's 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 encouraging to hear and like maybe maybe it's just like you know the more prickly people that don't like it. I like that. I like that term, prickly people. <laughs> I'm gonna use that from now on. <laughs> a nicer way of saying some harsher words <laughs> <laughs> all right well thank you very much for listening please check out rehydrate.space for release episodes reading lists pronunciation guides and all the other stuff we have on there please leave comments by emailing us at rehydrate at fastmail.com or on twitter at rehydrate pod and please join us next time for season six episode four the general covering part one of foundation and empire by isaac asimov